Uh, so I'm going to read from chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll, we'll dig in. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Would you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we begin to study from this text today, we just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you bring these words to life in our lives today. Lord, we thank you for the truth found in this text, one of the most beautiful and simple gospel declarations there is in all of Scripture. The good news of your grace toward us, your love for us, your work in us. Thank you, Jesus. So we just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to bring transformation, to speak truth to all the deepest places in our souls. May you make us more like you through this word today, Jesus. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, welcome. It's good, good to see you all. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I will not be here next Sunday. I'll be in Nanaimo, and so I'll miss you then, and I will miss the next chunk of Ephesians 2, but I'll listen to it after the fact. If you noticed when I read that teaching text today, it was a bunch of repeat from what we heard preached last Sunday, that Michelle brought this word on the first seven verses of chapter 2. And today I'm going to preach specifically from verses 8 to 10, which are very famous prominent verses you've probably heard many times. They're lovely verses about grace and the gospel. And a little peek behind the curtain, one of the joys of leading a teaching team at a church is that you get to decide kind of how you do it and how you lay it out. So like most churches and places and teachers will do verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians 2 all together. You know, you do the really tough stuff about the pit about who we are on our own, left to our own devices, the difficult things about the pit. And then you join that together with this beautiful stuff in verses 8 to 10 about grace. But when you oversee the teaching schedule, you get to do fun things like make sure that Michelle has to give a whole sermon on the pit and on our depravity and the really tough stuff. And then you get to swoop in and do verses 8 to 10 on grace. And you just get the, you know, get the easier part, all the dirty work's done. Now we feel better today, and we get to soak in the grace of Jesus. I'm joking, of course, I didn't do that on purpose, but I did really want to specifically give us a Sunday and some time 
to just sit in the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Because I think it's a text, it's a short passage, that like I said, many of us in this room will have heard so many times. It may be a favorite passage of scripture for some in this room who are familiar with the New Testament. But because of that, because of its prominence, I wanted us to sit in the truth of it and really dig in today. And in reality, Paul doesn't present those two ideas in some kind of stark contrast. He, he, it's not by accident that he presents them side by side to present this beautiful but very important contrast between verses 1 to 4 and then on. It's all in line with the flow of thought that Paul continues to outline which is this flow of thought that he began in chapter 1 about our identity in Christ. So if you've been with us all the way along, we've talked about how especially the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul does a ton of really incredible work on identity. Our identity in Christ. Who we are in Him. And so in chapter 1, Paul brought us through this incredible series of teachings that basically say, in Christ, this is who you are. And if you remember, there was a list that we looked at as chapter 1 just flows through all these things that are true of us as we're found in Christ. Chosen, loved, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed with the Spirit, guaranteed an inheritance. It's this incredible list. This is who you are. It's this incredible identity that we carry. And I pray, again, that you would know that today. That you would know that to be true of you today. But before you get this urge to feel pretty accomplished or smug about this position that you find yourself in, chapter 1 ends. It was a lovely time, but it's over now. Chapter 1 ends and it pivots. And in chapter 2, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the most important part of that list in chapter 1 was not actually all of these qualifying adjectives about you or me. But the most important part of chapter 1 was actually the repeated phrase found in every single clause of the run-on sentence. The repeated phrase, in Christ. In Greek, en Christo. And this is the most important part of chapter 1. Because this is your identity in Christ. And only there. In Christ. Because on your own, left to your own devices, the enemy draws you to the pit, and we go there oh so willingly. Like sheep to the slaughter, we follow the enticing lead to the pit, like we talked about last week. And this is also who we are. I've said that a lot these last few weeks of preaching in Ephesians. This is who we are, pointing to that list and saying, this is who you are in Christ. But like sheep to the slaughter, trudging our way into the pit, the reality is, this is also who we are. And Paul describes it very starkly in verse 1 of chapter 2. Left to our own devices, looking for identity and purpose in all the places the world offers and entices us toward, we are quite frankly dead. We are spiritually dead. We are dead in our transgressions, in our waywardness, in our propensity to sin, in our longing for the things of the world, in our worshiping at the altars of false gods everywhere. Just pick your flavor. We are dead. It's a tough word, but Paul's really, really forward about it. 
So in Christ, chapter 1, we have this overwhelmingly beautiful and affirming identity and outlook. You are significant. You are loved. You are infused with purpose. But on your own, chapter 2, early chapter 2, is the life of the pit. This is also who we are. And while that might seem confusing, what this means is that the transformation between one to the other is stark. It isn't a cosmetic shift here or a little tweak there. It is a complete transformation. It's like the extreme home makeover show where they open that wall and you realize that it wasn't actually the house, but it was just a picture of the old rickety house. And then behind that is the majestic, transformed, unrecognizable subject. Old life, identity, and trajectory gone. New life with new identity, new hope for the future, realized in Christ is our new reality. And remember that Paul said, look to the throne. Look to the throne, see Jesus seated there, and orient your whole life from there. And seated with Christ, as John Stott points out, we are seated on the throne with him. Look to the throne. Seated with Christ, we are seated on the throne with him. This is the union language we've talked about. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We are seated on the throne with him. This is the truth of the gospel. And chapter 2 reminds us that we were not naturally born as rightful heirs to that throne. That you and I were not on some trajectory to royalty if we just played our cards right. But that instead... We find ourselves there, on the throne seated with Christ, because of a great exchange that placed us in him who is rightfully reigning there. Him who is worthy of the throne. And in that exchange, we are transformed from beggars to royalty. From the lowest of lows to the highest of heights. From spiritual squalor to heavenly riches. Literally from death to life. In a way that's powerfully foreshadowed by the Old Testament story of Joseph, if you're familiar with it. We are given a transfer from the pit to the throne. And this begs the question, or at least it ought to beg the question for us today. Of why? Why? Why this exchange? And Michelle last week brought us through the two-word clause in chapter 2 that changed everything. The two-word clause that changes everything for us. But God. But God. Verses 4 to 7, they read like this. And this was the end of Michelle's text last week. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the why, the answer to the why, well because of his unfathomable love for us and his deep, rich mercy. That's the why. 
because of God's great love for us, which is frankly impossible to fully understand why the God of the universe would love us enough in this kind of way to do this for us. But he showed mercy on us, and this is the why. But there's also, I think, a deeper struggle present here as well, which is the question of how. How on earth could we make that kind of exchange? How on earth could we be brought from death to life? And if you're here today and you're anything like me, you're thinking a little bit along these kinds of lines. Like, I love Ephesians 1. I love reading that list and hearing all those things that are true of me in Christ. But how is it possible? Because honestly, I relate probably a lot more to early chapter 2's image of humanity than chapter 1's image of humanity and identity. I could never make it on the throne. And even if I somehow got put there, I would never be capable of staying there. The chasm between who I am and who I want to be and who I feel I'm called to be in Christ is so great. So, so the question for me is, you know, is this rags to riches story like most of them, frankly, too good to be true? And that leads honestly and ultimately into verses 8 to 10, into Paul's answers to those potential concerns of the heart. And the encouragement to our souls being in these verses, you're right, chapter 2 does describe and depict your identity and humanity probably in a way that's maybe even more relatable to you than chapter 1. But the answer to that concern of the heart is, the work is not our own. The work is the Lord's. The work is his. And as we dig into chapter to verses 8 to 10, there are three types of work that God wants to do on our behalf. Three types of work that God wants to do on our behalf. God's work for you, God's work in you, and God's work through you. And these are all laid out in these verses. God's work for you, God's work in you, and God's work through you. And they go in that order. It's God's work for you, which leads to God's work in you, which leads to God's work through you. And when you're experiencing these different aspects of God's work, you, my friend, are living. Truly living. And we'll briefly work through each of these this afternoon. And I've, I've shared this part of my story before, but as it's fairly significant to me, I think I'll keep sharing it. But when I was in grade 12, I was, I was 17. And I had for a few years really kind of wandered from, from faith. Uh, high school was uh, an intellectual and spiritual wandering time for me. I grew up in the church. I grew up really excited about doing things in the church. My dad was a pastor. But high school was very much intellectually and spiritually a journey for me. And for years, I had, I had just made the decision, no, I don't believe. I don't believe. Certainly if there's a God, it's not the God I read about in Scripture. And I said and did a lot of things. Specifically said a lot of things to a whole lot of people that caused a lot of damage and pain to myself and others. And it was, it was right near the end of high school. I was in grade 12. I was 17 years old. And I just really felt for this period of time this drawing of the Lord back to himself. It was more experiential and emotional than anything intellectual at the time. But I just felt this real drawing from the Lord. 
drawing me into himself. And it was interesting because for me, the biggest struggle that I experienced was a real feeling of, of shame and guilt. I, I felt drawn to the Lord. I felt like I loved Jesus. And I wanted to live in the family of God. I wanted to take on this identity in Ephesians 1. I wanted to be a child of God. I wanted to live in this story. But one of the things I really wrestled with and struggled with was just, I, it can't be this easy. There's too much water under the bridge. And, and I felt this guilt and shame over things that I had done, things that I had said I knew better, etc., etc. And I wrestled for a good while with the grace of God. But there must be something that I can do. There must be something that I have to do. I must have to make amends and make up for the things that I've done and said. And long story short, God brought me on this weekend away to, to, uh, to Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, there's this quotation from Psalm 32. And it basically says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are, are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is he whose sin the Lord will never come against him. And it was this powerful moment of just really feeling the, the grace and forgiveness of God wash over me. But I wrestled for a long time with, it just, it doesn't make sense. I can't, it can't be this simple. It can't just be, oh, I'll just turn and I'll ask for forgiveness and it's done. I must have to do something because frankly, it's not fair. It doesn't seem fair. And I think I had an idea in my head that somehow it was supposed to be fair. But the beauty of grace, and this is why I tell the story and share this part of my story, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. If verses 8 and 9 of our text today make this really clear. It says, first by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, mercy, which has been used in this text in chapter 2, Mercy language evokes images of someone like relenting from dishing out punishment. You, know, you think of movies and like war scenes where it's like, oh, have mercy, like relent from dishing out punishment. Mercy is like not getting what you deserve. But grace is even better. Grace is getting something that you didn't deserve. Grace is an unmerited, unearned favor. Grace is a sheer gift. Grace is God's work for you. It is his work. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And the faith part is fascinating. Faith is loving trust in God's gift of grace given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. The gift is still the grace of God. The gift is still his. The work is still his. The gift is still the grace of God. Faith is receiving. Faith is receiving and taking hold of that gift. There's an 18th century Dutch theologian named Henricus Sikama who described faith as the hand of the beggar who would receive alms of generosity of a rich man, to which he must stretch out his hand to receive, but in which case the hand ultimately deserves nothing, but is only the means by which he receives the gift. This is how he describes faith. Faith is a grabbing hold of the gift, leaning all your weight on it, putting all of your hope in it, living all of your life in light of it. By grace, you've been saved. Grace is the gift. It is the work for you of God. This is not from yourself. It's not by your work so that no one can boast. And this is an important differentiation. Because I think it's, it's so different from the religious spirit of humanity. 
much of what I described in my own story. Religion, I think, is much of where this came from for me. Religion operates on the premise, I obey God so that God will love me. The gospel says, God loves me, therefore I obey him. God loves me not because I am lovely or inherently lovable, but in order to make me so. Religion is about good people and bad people, and Michelle talked about this last week. Good people are like me. Bad people are like them. To be good, be like me and like my tribe. The gospel says that in our natural state, everyone is dead in sin and thus subject to wrath. Everyone is sinful, but also everyone is love. And God's love will change anyone to be more like Jesus. This is the good news. That same year after I, I really gave my life to Jesus, was following him, I moved to England and did a year of, of, of study in England. And during that time, I was just fresh in this like, commitment to Jesus, excited about my faith. I read this book, and it was perfectly timed for me. I read this book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. One of, the, one of my favorite books I've ever read. It still holds up. And in What's So Amazing About Grace, Yancey writes this line. He says, having spent time around, quote, sinners and also around purported saints, I have a hunch why Jesus spent so much time with the former group. I think he preferred their company. Because the sinners were honest about themselves and had no pretense. Jesus could deal with them. In contrast, the saints put on airs, judged him, and sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. See, religion is about how good you are. Religion is about being good enough. The question becomes, and what I wrestled with for so long, how good do you have to be? And what about your bad deeds? Do your good deeds outweigh them? Do they outweigh the bad deeds? Is there some kind of cosmic scale that we need to operate on here? How many good deeds does it take to erase a bad deed? Is it like a seven to one contrast? How does this work? And if I think I'm good enough, doesn't that ultimately lead to pride and self-righteousness and then provide me with a platform to look down on other people who don't seem quite as good as me? None of which is very good or very helpful. Or if I don't feel platformed in that way, it leads to the opposite. And it leads me to despair and cynicism where I realize I'll just frankly never be good enough and I'll never measure up. And so it's hopeless and what's the point? But the gospel, the gospel of grace is the good news that it's not about how good you are. The gospel is about how gracious God is. By grace you've been saved, and this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. This is the work of God for you. It's his work, and it's finished, it's complete. So that's the first one. And the next type of work that God wants to do on our behalf is the work of God in you. And it's interesting, in Ephesians 2, it's a very clear emphasis from Paul that there is work being done in us as we live in one way or another. Whatever way we're living, there is work being done in us. It's just a matter of who is being allowed to do the work. See, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he talks about the enemy. The spirit who is now, quote, at work in those who are disobedient. 
So the spirit of the enemy is also working. He is at work in us, in those who are disobedient. It's Paul's clearest way of saying spiritual formation isn't just something that certain people do who are interested in it, who read books about it, who practice spiritual disciplines, etc., etc. He's saying spiritual formation is a reality for all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not. We are all being formed. You are being formed. It just depends on by what or by whom. The world forms us. Our desires form us. Our goals form us. The things we seek identity in and from form us. The enemy forms us. And verse 10 says that in contrast to that, the enemy at work in us, in contrast to that, verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. And he continues to refine this work in us. And this is the work of God in us, and it's what we call sanctification, if you've heard that word before. Being formed day by day into the image of Christ. And this, again, is the work of the Spirit of God in us, which we partner with as we submit in obedience to him instead of to anything or anyone else. We are God's workmanship. He is doing work in us. We are God's workmanship. We're God's poem, God's masterpiece. He is recreating us and making us new. How beautiful is this? That God hasn't thrown out the original script that we messed up, but instead he's rewriting it and making us new. God is doing this beautiful and redemptive work in us. And we're not going to spend too much time here today because Paul's going to do a bunch more work in Ephesians, especially in the second half of the book that we'll get to in the new year, talking about formation and partnering with God's work in that, the work that he's doing in us. But the point is that God cares deeply about who we are becoming. God cares deeply about who we are becoming because we are his handiwork, his poem, the apex of his good creation. And he will keep chipping away at our character. We're not finished in one draft. I wish we were, but we're not. He's going to take his time with us. But the question to continue asking ourselves as we seek to partner with God in the work that he's doing in us is quite a simple question. It's the question to continue asking ourselves, which is, who am I becoming? Who are you becoming? We are being formed. We are persons of spiritual formation, whether we're conscious of it or not. We are being formed by our relationships, by our work and rest rhythms, by our habits, by our time management, by the things that we consume, by our screen time and the things that we consume on that. The list goes on and on and on. We are being formed. You are being formed. And God cares deeply about who you are becoming. By grace, he did this sacrificial work for you that he might continue to do powerful work in you. You are his workmanship, his handiwork. His work of art. The question is, who are you becoming? So that's God's work for you and God's work in you. Beautiful truths from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And the final one is equally beautiful, also missional and convicting. 
The third one is God's work through you. And we see this in verse 10, continuing, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Like we said, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk into. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to his good work that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. We'll learn this from the text next week. We aren't just saved from something. We are saved for something. We are not only saved by our God's works, we are also saved to his good work, into his good work, works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. And this is a fascinating, it's a fascinating point and thing to think about. Because there are so many good things to do. There are so many good things to do. We look around our world, we see need and pain everywhere. And if you're anything like me, you're often overwhelmed by all of the good things that need doing. All of the things that are out there that are good that need to be done and feel like, man, I can't even make a dent. There are so many good things to do. And the reality is you can't do something about everything. It's just not possible. That's what leads me to my feelings of overwhelm. It's just like, I can't do something about everything out there that's wrong. But the reality is you can do something about something, right? And God has something good that he created you to do. Something good that he prepared in advance. Now there are general good works that he's prepared in advance for all of us to do. These are, many of these are directives from scripture. Love God and love our neighbors. We are all directed to do this. This is a good work for each and every one of us. Forgive one another. Give. Serve. These are all general good works that God's prepared for each of us. They're a general call as we follow Jesus. But there are also specific good works that, that fit our specific wiring. I like to think of it in the language of what I call macro identity and your micro identity. So your macro identity is this list in Ephesians 1 we've been talking about for weeks. This is who you and I are in Christ. You are loved, chosen, filled with the Spirit, sealed with an inheritance. This is our macro identity, who each of, our, each of us are in Christ Jesus. But your micro identity exists as well, and this is the specific work of art that you are, that you are and I am not. God's handiwork with specific works that God has prepared for you and not for me, or that he's prepared for me and not for you. The specific work of art that you are. And you know why people burn out, either in their faith or pursuit of, of trying to follow Jesus or whatever it might be? People burn out because they've taken on good works that weren't prepared in advance for them. Unless you, unless you assume that God desires for us to burn out, which is a whole different conversation. But you burn out because you've taken on the good work that God prepared for someone else. The good works that God has actually prepared for you won't burn you out. You will get tired. Sure, that's a reality of the human experience. You will get tired, but your soul will be alive. And this is what's so amazing. We are saved from sin into service in the kingdom of God. And as God continues to work in you, 
forming you day by day into his likeness and character, the works that he's prepared for you in advance to walk in, the work that he wants to do through you, become more and more apparent to us. And not only that, but because of that, because of that work that he's doing in you, the work that he wants to do through you becomes possible. Your macro identity is that you are chosen, loved, seated in the heavenly places with Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Your micro identity is that you are God's handiwork, his piece of art. He has created you with giftings and purpose for beautiful work to be done through you. And God wants to continue that work in you so that he can multiply that work through you. He wants to continue that work in you so he can multiply that work through you. And what has Paul said elsewhere in his letters? The beauty of this truth this truth that it's God's work and not our work is that God always, unlike us, God always finishes what he starts. In fact, God only begins what he intends to complete. We've seen this in Philippians 1 verse 6. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the work of God in you is a work that he promises to bring to beautiful completion. God's work for you, which leads to God's work in you, which leads to God's work through you. This is our journey. This is the journey of a follower of Jesus. As a church and as individuals. And I want to say today, this is a beautiful truth. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 is full of such wonderful truth for us. But sometimes it can feel overwhelming in a difficult way. Like a daunting, almost impossible call. Sometimes we can find ourselves filled with shame because of where we are, where we're at in the journey, or where we're not, where we aren't at right now in the journey. And that can fill us with shame. And we can find ourselves asking questions like, and I, I ask these questions of myself almost daily, we can find ourselves asking questions like, how is this true? How can I be seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? How can this be true? How can this work be being brought to completion in me and through me when I still lose it at my kids? When I still feel overwhelmed or feel a sense of dread at work? When I still feel mired in a depression or there's vices in my life that still have this grip on me that I just can't shake. I haven't fully vanquished all of them yet. How can this be true? I'm made holy. I'm seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, I receive all of that. I hear that, Paul. I'm made alive. We've emphasized what Paul says is true about us in Christ Jesus. This whole list, yes, this is amazing, it's beautiful. But I still, insert what that is for you there, but I still, there's things I haven't vanquished yet. I still feel so far from it. And what do I do with the space there? What do I do with that space in between? And the answer, friends, is simple. The answer is Ephesians 2, verse 8. In that space there, in that space between, 
who we are and yet who we are still becoming. Who we are in Christ Jesus and yet who he is still making us to be. In that space in between, we simply fall on the grace of God. And this isn't some defeatist giving up mindset, though in a way it is a giving up mindset. It is a giving up in that it is surrendering. It's surrendering our effort to earn approval or earn salvation, surrendering that to the finished work of God for you. That first point, the most important, it's surrendering that to the finished work of God for you. The emphasis of this whole text is that God is doing work in us and through us. And we're called on this journey to partner with him and become more and more the people that he has made us to be. But over and over and over again, friend, again, friends, we will fall short. We will continue to fail. And this whole journey can only stand and can only continue on because of the work of God for you. Because of verse 8. By grace you've been saved. And this is a gift. It's not by your works, but all by his. All by his perfection and goodness and power. So we fall on the grace of God. And in that we confess our shortcomings and our failings. And we invite the spirit of God to work in the deepest and maybe even darkest places in us. So that we can grow in the work that he can do through us. But it is only because of grace. It is only because of grace and we fall on that grace day after day after day. To quote Yancey again from What's So Amazing About Grace, he says, Grace means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. I've been a pastor for almost 10 years now. And when a church really believes teaching like this, it creates a certain type of culture. So let me end by giving you this picture. There's a big difference between a church that feels like a waiting room of patients, hopeful to see the doctor, and a church that feels like a bunch of individuals applying for a job waiting to be interviewed. In a job interview, people are dressed for success. There's pressure to perform, pressure to measure up, to put your best foot forward, to highlight your strengths and hide your weaknesses. The waiting room, on the other hand, is filled with competitors, not patients. People to beat, not people with needs to meet. It's an enemy to authenticity, vulnerability, and humility. And since all of those things are the very things that are required for deep relationship and community, it's also an enemy to all of that in the church as well. But a room filled with patients waiting to see the doctor is very different. Everyone in that room is sick, albeit in their own different ways. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs comfort. And because of that, because of that acknowledgement and understanding, there's no reason to pretend that you're not sick. We can all acknowledge that that's the very reason we're here. There's no reason to pretend you're not sick. 
Your patience with other patients waiting for the doctor. There's no room for pride, no room for showboating or one-upmanship. There's authenticity because there's a shared need. No one gets to pretend in the waiting room for the doctor that they don't need help. And this leads to openness and vulnerability and humility. And the gospel creates that second type of environment. It creates that second type of culture. We were all in dire straits. Read the beginning of chapter 2. We were all dead in our transgressions. We were in the pit by our own devices. And God has come to rescue us in Christ. It's something we can take no credit for and have no reason to boast in. We're all on the same playing field. And so we come. The gospel truth is that we come and we gather as this kind of community. May this be true of us. There's a quote from a woman named Rachel Joy Welchurch. She writes this. Imagine a church where widows and adolescents discuss their struggle together. Where single moms, divorcees, married couples, the same sex attracted, gather together to study the Bible and to pray. A place where no prayer request, no question or struggle is taboo or off limits because we've set our makeshift halos aside and admitted our shared humanity. Imagine us holding one another up in our weakest moments instead of wrestling the darkness alone. Imagine a gathering of saints where God's word is held high, his holiness worshipped, and forgiveness in Christ plays like a record on repeat. I want to rest my weary bones there. I want to be part of that church. Friends, that is the type of church that this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, if taken seriously, creates. My prayer is, Lord, may you form this type of church in our little gathering here in Mount Pleasant. Let me pray for us and we'll worship together. Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we're blown away by your grace. Lord, we rest in every conceivable way. We rest on that good news of your work for us. We rest on your grace. Lord, each and every day, as we seek to follow you, as we seek to grow in your likeness, and we fall so so short, we fall on your grace, Jesus. We just say thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great love for us that was so undeserved, that we're so unworthy of. Thank you for showing us mercy, and in your mercy, delighting to do what it took to make us right before you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. And God, I pray for us in this room, for this church, for those who aren't here with us today, for where you're taking us in the future as a church, I pray that you would make us into a church that lives so passionately out of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, that lives so passionately out of the understanding of our place and what you did to make our place possible with you, that lives so passionately out of the grace of the God who loved us in spite of our sin, that we go out and we love those in need of grace. That we are a church that lives out of grace into grace, into service. That we love our neighbor. That we love those around us 
that others may scoff at, that we welcome people into our midst and we love them. That this church, this place, this community would be a place for all people. It would be a place to belong. A place where there's a seat at the table of the family of God. Because we understand, Lord, that we are all unfit for a place at the table. Without being found in you, Jesus, we are all so far short of rightful heirs to a throne of cosmic authority. And yet here we are. Ephesians 1 tells us this is precisely who we are in you. And God, we just praise you for that good news. May you make us a church that goes out with that good news, proclaims it, and invites those far from you into the fold.